On today's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I interviewed Thomas Fry, founder of the Da Vinci Institute. For those that don't know Thomas, he's a futurist and considered Google's top-rated futurist speaker and is IBM's most award-winning engineer. Over the past decade, Thomas has built an enormous following around the world based on his ability to develop accurate visions of the future and describe the opportunities ahead. Listen in as Thomas discusses the future of work and leadership. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and thank you so much for tuning in to our newest episode of The Leadership Habit. Today, I am interviewing an amazing expert. His name is Thomas Fry. He is a futurist, a speaker, an author, and we spent the last half hour before this just talking about all of the different thoughts that he has, not all of them, but many, and it was so great to just hear your perspective. So Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. All right, let's have some fun on this show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's do that. (laughs) Thomas, for those that don't know you, even though you've traveled the world, we just talked about how you were in China and Russia, you're everywhere. For our listeners that haven't heard of Thomas Fry yet, tell us about yourself from your words. All right. I work as a uh, a futurist, and my job is to help expand people's understanding of what the future holds. Now, I tend to do that primarily through technology-driven change, so how the technology is affecting us, but sometimes there's a lot of other factors that come into play. Um, and so it is this rich vein of opportunity, and the way I kind of the way I think about this is that um, if we, we we make decisions today based on our understanding of what the future holds. So it's this vision of the future that we have in our head determines our actions today. So if I change somebody's vision of the future, I change the way they make decisions today. Now that's a critical factor because every presentation I do, that's my goal is to change people's vision of the future. And as a result, they walk out of the room making different decisions. Gosh, that's a big challenge. Oh, it is, yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to, or it's difficult for them to see a future that's different than their past. Right, I mean, it's real easy to understand. See, we've all personally experienced the past. As we look around us, we see evidence of the past all around us. In fact, all information we come into contact with is essentially history. So the past is very knowable, and yet we're going to be spending the rest of our lives in the future. So it's almost as if we're walking backwards into the future. And and so that's the challenge, is to help turn people around, give them some idea of what the future might hold, because we are focusing on what's happened in the past, because that's what we know. That's very knowable. It's very understandable for us. The future, though, that's this whole vague area that uh, is yet to unfold. And so that's that's my playground. That is a fun place to play, especially with just understanding how much technology has even changed in the last few years. Yeah. You know, especially more so if you look at it over a few decades, but even the last few years, how different technology looks like and what how that impacts organizations or individuals. Yeah. Um, and, and it's changing so quickly. Um, just think about a child growing up today, what a, a five-year-old today, what they will experience over the next 10 years and 20 years and, and so on. I mean, just 
in, in through the eyes of a child how the world is shifting and changing because they have a whole different perspective on the world we live in than we do. And my dad just turned 93 years old today, and he has a radically different perspective than I do because he was he was born before World War II, and he has that whole generation, uh, that type of thinking. Um, and so how do we take our minds and put it into the future? And then we start getting a better grasp as to what's going to happen there. It gives us an advantage. If we can get make our decisions even 1% more correct in the future because of uh, studying it and understanding what's going on, it gives us a huge advantage over our competitors. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're two steps ahead of them, three steps ahead of them. Yeah. I know that we didn't plan to talk to this, but how do you even start to position yourself where yeah. you can see it even 1% greater mm -hmm. or more... Um, more correct than what you were before? There, there's a number of different techniques that we use. Uh, these are what's referred to as anticipatory thinking protocols. These are the tools that futurists use. Some of them work better than others. I have a, a number of techniques that I like to use myself. One of them I call situational futuring, which I will take some technology and extend it out 20 years, and then I will create bodies of information like how will this affect a housewife how will this affect an entrepreneur or a school teacher and, and start going around and creating these scenarios around that and then that creates this little mosaic of information about that and then once you start creating these scenarios about the future then you try to break them you say well what if this didn't happen this way what if this broke here what if there's a law against it or what if these companies come out with something that outdates that technology and 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 so we come at it from a lot of different angles but that's the fun part i think anyway yes well and there's a lot of fun things even that were just coming through my head right now whether it be a Roomba, you know, those little vacuum cleaners that go around yeah. the floor, like thinking, what would those look like in 25 years? How will that functionality change? Well, let's, let's just take that idea. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you have a device, some robotic device that's cleaning your house. Now th that robotic device has to know what's valuable and what isn't. Now this device is going on cleaning the living room and it comes across a piece of paper. How does it know if that's a valuable piece of paper or a piece of trash? Now it could be a dollar bill. It could be a birth certificate. It could be any number of valuable things, or it could just be a page torn out of a magazine. How does it know that? So over the coming years, we're going to be teaching our robots how to think what's important and what isn't. Now as an individual, we place an emotional value on every object in our house. This chair is worth more than this table. This couch is worth more than this lamp over here. And so we have an emotional value that we place in everything. So we don't, we don't consciously think about this, but we have um, a, a values system that we instill in the things that we have around us. And, and so if we're going to start training our robot how to clean a house, then we are instilling that value system into it and that and our personal bias goes along with that um which which is something that's going to be a challenge sometime in the future but i mean we have to teach this robot if it's 
cleaning the walls. You don't spray the wall with water because the electrical outlets will start shorting out. You have to, these are things that it has to learn. Um, and so all of these things, uh, now, now I talk about, we talk back and forth to our devices, like whether it's Alexa, Cortana, Google, uh, whatever it might be. Um, we talk back and forth to it. We're building the brains of the robot because these things are getting smarter as we go. So the more we talk back and forth, the more conversations we have with them, uh, they're going to get smarter. And so over time, they can uh, start making complicated decisions. Now, when I talk about building the brains of the robot, the robot might be a driverless car in the future. The robot might be a flying drone. It might be an actual robot. But these brains that we're training or maybe a vacuum cleaner for that matter. Um, uh, we're going to start installing these brains and everything around us. And so that, uh, uh, and then we'll, we'll ask, uh, Siri, Hey Siri, what kind of beer am I in the mood for today? Uh, and, and we'll get an answer. Uh, so we won't even have to think anymore because they'll do it all for us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and that's just, I mean, there's so much of 1984 going through my head. There's so much of, or I, I should say the book 1984, or even just thinking about, you know, you something stuck with me in terms of thinking about our own value system and just the moral conflict or the values conflict that can come into play based on how you even program a robot to think. Right. And what someone else may agree or disagree with that. I don't even have it a specific example, but anytime you think of values, there there has to be, you know, it's a little bit objective, yeah. depending on what you're looking at. So, I so, could, so this whole 1984 thing, yeah, we don't like the surveillance idea. No, I don't like the surveillance idea, but I have two Alexas in my house. Yeah, but think, <laughs> but, but think about getting into a driverless car in the future. They're going to be watching you. Yes. Because the government wants to prevent terrorists from driving a bomb into a building or blowing up people or unleashing a contagious disease that would go from one car to another. So, so there's all kinds of sensors. There's all kinds of uh, audio recordings, video recordings and stuff that will likely go on inside of driverless cars. Um, even though people would prefer that that not happen, you you want some um, you want some privacy in your car. But there's a trade-off: privacy and convenience, and, and then there's a security aspect of it too. Um, is it okay to put my dog into a driverless car by themselves to go to doggy daycare? Oh my gosh! <laughs> and do you want? Then do you want to get into that car after that dog's been in there? Is it okay to put my child into a driverless car to go to school? Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to invent a car that will recognize a parent on one end and a teacher on another end. Can I put a six-year-old kid into a driverless car to go to school? And for how long? I mean, we haven't had these discussions. These are public policy issues that nobody's talked about. Right. Even the minimum age of what... You yeah. know, kids for, can for, ride in a car seat, but then if it comes to going into a driverless car, how and, old do they do And for how long? Uh, 10 minutes okay? I mean, things go wrong. If a kid's by themselves for a half hour, is that too long? Uh, a six-year-old kid? I mean, they can get sick. They can throw up. 
they go get panic attacks. But then if you program it to identify it, then they could drive them to a hospital, right? <laughs> I mean, that's just, oh my gosh, I'm blowing my mind just thinking about, because I know that even in my own lifetime, the internet didn't, it wasn't as prevalent. I mean, I think that the conceptual theory of internet was there, but in terms of it being a mainstream thing that people used, yeah, AOL to get dial up internet, that took so long. And the fact that now everyone has a personal, my grandparents are in their mid eighties and they use social media. They have their smartphones. They have an Alexa. She's got a Kindle. So the books go right there. I mean, it's crazy. Right. right. I can't even conceptualize what that is going to look like in 20 years, let alone five years, because I feel like the pace of technology is so quick. So the iPhone, the first iPhone came out in 2007. Now keep that in mind, because that was 12 years ago. You know, just think of all the things that we didn't have before the iPhone came out. We didn't have any mobile apps before then. Twitter just barely got started before then. I mean, GPS was really bad. Facebook, too. Facebook's yeah. only 15 years old. Yeah, and everybody owned a camera. Uh, now they, they use their phone. <laughs> right, and then you save everything on the cloud. Why print out those pictures? You don't need those. Yeah, everybody's <laughs> buying these damn expensive printers that, uh, <laughs> with, with the, the color cartridges that cost $40 for color cartridge. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's crazy. So we've, we've altered our life in so many ways and we just can't even remember all of the changes that happened along the way. Um, I remember going into stores, having to write a check and having to show three, three different forms of ID. Um, well, first of all, I'd have to wait for the person in front of me that had to do all this too. And then taking a half hour to get that person checked out. And then it came to me and I would have to do the same thing. And then the checkout lanes were really, really long. We had to have all these people working there to just, uh, shore up all the credentials and everything and make sure that everybody, uh, paid with, with, uh, guaranteed funds or something. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was such a laborious process. Um, and, and we, we forget where we've come from because that, that was just uh, super painful. And now we're, we're at an age where things, you just flash your phone and, um, and suddenly you've paid for it. Um, now over in China, it's really interesting because in China, they're using Alipay and WeChat pay to pay for, for things, they don't use credit cards over there and they've stopped using cash for the most part. So even if you're a beggar on the street, the beggars have a QR code out next to them so that you can, you can send them a few bucks through your phone. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Or if you're a busker on the street, you're a street performer, you have a QR code out there so you can get your tips that way. Yeah. So there's no change of hands and money, no physical right. change of hands. Yeah. No, nobody's carrying cash anymore. How does that impact? I know that fintech is on the rise. How does that impact from your own perspective? Like how would our even shifting out of a paper currency, that handheld currency, how does that impact our traditional banking system? See, when, when you pay for something in cash, that's uh, painfully laborious. I mean, a cash transaction 
the money actually end up getting counted at least seven times throughout this transaction. The person handing you the money counted the money out. Then the person receiving it counted the money in. At the end of the shift, they had to count up how much was taken in that day. And then you're going to make a deposit. You have to count it into the deposit. The person at the bank taking it in has to count it again. And at the end of the banking shift, then they count it again. And so just the number of times that that cash has to get counted. Just think of the labor content in cash. It's just massively huge. Now, when you're dealing with digital money, it's just numbers on a, a spreadsheet. It's way easier than counting the cash in and out. And everything's done by a computer. So the human error, everything is so much yeah. more yeah. <laughs> less. Yeah, nobody's going to slide a $20 bill in their pocket if it's all digital. Right. And then I guess, how does that impact the ability to counterfeit or counterproduce money? Right, right. If it's that way, how can you possibly then create well, you, an extra? You have some really smart hackers out there that are trying to figure out ways of duplicating money. So I, I send I send $100,000 over here. Well, let's duplicate it and send another 100 over here. And they won't know the difference. Well, that's that's the big trick. That's You have to make sure that that's not possible. Gosh, I, I knew that I was going to have ask you a million questions that were also going to go off topic, but we can, so we've already had, a, I really love our conversation that we've had thus far. I can change gears and go into what we had talked about talking about, but I almost don't want to, but I do want to, because it's, it's just neat to think about how our future, I guess, if we bring it back, even going into AI, how are you seeing AI have an impact on the workforce? Yeah, virtually everybody um, today has this nagging anxiety. Am I still going to have a job five years from now? And if not, what new skills do I need to learn to be, uh, to be relevant in the future? That's, uh, that's, it's kind of this nagging concern that virtually everybody has. And, and so it's a moving target. It, it really is a moving target, but the, the way I look at this is, um, the internet is a very sophisticated communication tool. It enables us to align the needs of a business with the talent of individuals in far more precise ways than ever before. So rather than hiring somebody full time, we bring them on for two months or two weeks or two days or even two hours. Um, and so I think in the future that we're, we're not uh it, it's not us versus the ai it's not us versus the robot it's us with them and so i think we're moving into this era of super employment only it's not full-time jobs it's all gigs um and so the the big problem we have today is nobody's teaching people how to how to run the business of you uh, that's that's a challenge uh Nobody thinks of themselves as a as a business unit, because um, uh, in the future we're going to have all these freelance opportunities, but nobody's really good at at managing that, and so that takes a variety of skills. You, you suddenly you have to learn how to set up a business entity around yourself. Then you have to learn how to price your services, how to negotiate deals, how to write contracts, how to how to market yourself, how to sell yourself. Um, even creating, uh, creating your books, doing the accounting, uh, getting insurance, uh, 
all of these things that you have to you have to take on once you're an entrepreneur. And so nobody's teaching people how to do that. We have a little over one and a half million people today that are freelancers in the United States making over a hundred thousand dollars a year. So if you want to break into that uh, high paid freelancer category, you have to suddenly uh, hang out with other high paid freelancers. That's, that's the best way to learn how to do that. But how do you do that? Because those freelancers don't want to be found. Uh, and so, uh, so it's so it becomes rather tricky, but I I find this whole category very interesting, and and it's it's not that AI is taking all of our jobs away. I, AI becomes another tool in our toolbox. It gives us the ability to do things and accomplish things that we could never do in the past. Right. Work smarter, not harder. Right. Yeah. And it's it. I mean, it, I didn't think about that. That everyone slowly is becoming maybe their own personal brand in a way that they never even needed to find that value in themselves that they could bring. They never needed to see that beyond or outside of their annual review of how did you do this year? They didn't have yeah. to consciously think about those goals for themselves. Pretty much we've been trained from birth to be a cog in the wheel. We've, we've been trained to be part of, part of the system, if you will. And, and in the middle of all that, we're being taught that we're not that important, but, but the reality is, is we're very important to us where there, there's, there's a group of people that are out there. That everybody has their own fan club. And so the, your ability to manage your own fan club, to grow it, to, to communicate with your fan club, to uh, have all the inputs and outputs with your fan club, that ability to manage your fan club that's a, that's a critical skill for the future. Nobody's teaching people how to do that. And that is so important because in the end, it ends up being all about you because it, you are the business. Right. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I just wanted to drop in with a quick note. Are you looking for a proven program to improve your management team's communication skills and create happier and more productive employees? Are your leaders able to take your strategy and break it down effectively for their teams to achieve your vision? Are they able to inspire and motivate their employees to produce real results and meet daily demands? Great managers don't happen overnight. Partner with Crestcom to develop your team and obtain results. Whether you are looking to improve employee engagement and reduce turnover or cultivate a more inclusive culture, our intensive leadership development program provides a diverse set of tools and skill sets for leaders to thrive in today's workforce. Contact us at crestcom.com so we can help you develop your leaders. And now back to our podcast. You know, you had written a blog article about your stance on, and it's titled 32 future accomplishments that will give you more status and influence than a college degree. But right now, I wouldn't say that college, unless you might be taking that entrepreneurial track and you're learning a little bit more about that, I don't think college really prepares us for any type of soft skill, introspective thinking and in the way that maybe aligns with what we would need to have in the future. Yeah. So I, I like to use this illustration. It actually never unfolds quite like this. But if you think about somebody from a college sitting down with an 18-year-old kid and they actually never say this, but this is the message that comes across. They're, they're telling the 18-year-old kid, 
hey, do you want to drive that fast car? Do you want to live in that house in the mountains or on the beach? All you have to do is sign here and all your dreams will come true. Now, they don't actually say that, but that's the message that the kid is hearing. And they're thinking, oh, well, this is an easy one. And it's a methodical process that you can step your way through to get a college degree. And uh, invariably, you'll start off with, with really high expectations of yourself. I'm going to go down this engineering path. I want to take some really hard classes uh, to test things out because I've been smart in high school and stuff. And and then after you take a few classes, you say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not quite cutting it. So maybe I'll switch to a degree in economics or something. And and then, yeah, yeah I'm still not passing the economics classes either. Uh, maybe I'll just take something easier just to, I got to salvage something out of this. And after two or three years, then, yeah, I need to graduate somehow. And so they'll take whatever degree they can get just to get out, out of the door. And they've comp made so many compromises along the way that they actually have nothing of value to, at the end. Now, this is, this is what typically happens. Now, somebody graduates from college, they can't find a job. So after a couple of months, they pick up a project, then they pick up another project, another project. And before they realize it, they're working as a freelancer. And it's just that nobody's taught them how to be a freelancer. And so they're doing it begrudgingly, thinking that the world somehow owed them a job never realizing that that could be the preferred lifestyle for them, that they could actually um, say no to the things that they're not good at, say yes to the things that they want to do, and actually take control of their own destiny. Um, now, that is a, a whole separate issue from, from what they're thinking, because that's uh, nobody's actually coached them to go in that direction. People don't even know they have the choice. I think I've right. heard the expression, the majority of people... Uh, go through life on autopilot every single day. They they just are not consciously aware that they are the ones that are in the driver's seat. Yeah, and there's so many conscious choices we're making. Um, we're we're just set in default mode. We we just uh, click on the default option all the time. Now, somebody who who wants to take initiative, though, that's where there's all these other options that are out there that nobody's talking about. Like if, if I want to design a video game, as an example, uh, people who design video games, that's, that's learning how to do that. That's, that's more than a college degree. And then being successful at it, that's even way better. If I'm going to become an inventor, learning the invention process, how to, how to file a patent, how to, how to market your invention, how to create prototypes and all that, that's the equivalent of a college degree. Maybe if it's successful in uh, invention that's even better. If if I'm going to um, write write a script for a TV series, uh, if it becomes a hit series, that's way better. Um, if I'm going to open my own business, if it's a successful business, that's even way better. If I get elected to uh, city council, that's the equivalent to a college degree. If I get elected to higher office, that's even better. Um, and so you can just start understanding that these are not there's not a methodical path you can go down to do any of these you have to make conscious decisions that you want to stick your neck out you want to be bold and different and try things that are unique and different and not be afraid of uh of failure that's that's all part of the game 
Right. And, and, and it's, you know, we're, that's a challenging piece because as we age, we obviously get more comfortable. So that fear of failure becomes a lot bigger than what it is. Well, yeah, there's a bigger downside. I mean, if you own three or four houses and you, um, and, and you have 250 people working for you, a failure can look radically different than, than somebody who's, who's all alone living in an apartment that doesn't have much to lose. So, so yeah, but, uh, the, the kind of the trick is to learn how to fail faster, uh, cause you're going to make mistakes. There's just things that are going to go wrong, but just keep at it. Just keep plugging away and just be relentless and, and try new things. There are so many new opportunities coming out of the woodwork. When I was a kid growing up, everybody wanted to become a rock star. Everybody wanted to be on stage. Who did you uh, want to be? Oh, I, you know, I had, uh, bands like Led Zeppelin and the who, and, and there's, there's lots of, uh, the Jethro Tull, there's lots of big bands out there, but, but now you talk to young kids, they either want to be, um, uh, they want to be a pro gamer. They want to play video games and, and win the big tournaments. Hell, the e-gaming. Yeah. Or the, or they want to be a YouTube star. Um, that's an easier path actually, because there's, there's hardly any barrier to entry to becoming a YouTube star. Um, well, at least getting YouTube's posted, uh, <laughs> right. all it takes is your phone. <clears throat> yeah. We have something like 400, 400 hours of, of YouTube video are going, getting posted every, every minute onto YouTube. Um, which is just absolutely crazy. Right. Yeah. If, if you want to create a product and sell it on Amazon, you can do that. But just understand that Amazon currently has 606 million products listed on Amazon. Wow. How big of a store would you have to have to host everything that Amazon sells? It's, it's, kind of, <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy because it's such a distributed network and everything. See, in the past... If you came up with the idea for a product that only appealed to one in 35,000 people, that would have been a product that nobody wanted to put on the store shelf because the, the market was too small. Nobody, nobody would want to put that in a store. Today, you can, you can make a really comfortable living out of products that only appeal to one in 35,000 people. And niche products. Yeah, because you can communicate with the entire world. And, and there are so many products that are even nichier than that that are on Amazon right now. Oh, I are, looked up one for a class. The one that I will know that I was shocked with was bacon flavored uh, dental floss. And bacon flavored band-aids too. What? <laughs> <laughs> does it look like a strip of bacon then too? <laughs> it does. It does. And yeah, but boy, does that wound heal fast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you wonder, like, how have we, and then, you know, does that, there's so many other problems that can come with that, too, of then are we, do we need to be creating all these things? <laughs> like, do we need bacon-flavored dental floss? There, there are moments in our life where that's exactly the answer we're looking for. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. So going and thinking about, you know, college, college isn't necessarily giving us, especially if they have a common path, which is that evolution of kind of bouncing through and then ending with a degree, but not necessarily one that 
is a STEM specific degree where they can add a lot of immediate value. It's more conceptual and it's not necessarily all applicable. But you talked about that there's so many different ways that we can create success for ourselves that are unrelated to the college degree and that will align with the direction of where we're going to be going in the future. And I think this is a valuable topic, obviously, with knowing how much debt is out there with student loans and that the rate that individuals are being paid isn't necessarily enough to be able to pay for them. Uh, And it's just not necessarily giving us the skills that maybe are in alignment with the future or the ones that we actually are going to use to create our success in that moment. So what do you do like for the people that, or maybe the people that are even thinking, I'm not going to take a risk because I don't have a college degree, right? Hanging their hat fully on that being the sole way to say that you are accomplished. Yeah. One of, one of the columns I wrote recently is uh, asked this question is, our certifications today now more valuable than college degrees because we can get certifications in areas like um, cybersecurity, uh, AWS, which is Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud Management. We can do a lot of healthcare certifications as well. And all of these, most of these we can get with within less than a year, we can get these certifications and then we're off and running making money uh, usually uh, well-paying jobs. Um, and in a lot of the tech spaces, the, the tech world really doesn't care what your, what your credentials are. They just care whether or not you can do the job. Um, and, and so all of these are, are, are unfolding quickly and the, the certifications are coming out of the woodwork because that's, that's a quick way to, um, uh, to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff. So has somebody gone through and learned these particular skills that are valuable to us? And, uh, and so as, as an example, um, uh, there, there's a lot of these, these uh, certifications that will pay uh, six figures and more. Um, the, the Google Cloud Management, that's one of the highest paid ones now. Artificial intelligence, that's one of the highest paid ones. Cybersecurity. These are just certificates. They aren't combined with a college degree. It's cert- if you go for the it's certificate. It's a certification uh, because you have to take a test. You do have to take a test. But they don't care what classes you took to get there. It's just that you take. if you pass the test, then you're, then you're good to go. Um, and, and so my, my son has an example. He... Um, um, uh, he didn't have a college degree, but he, uh, he learned how to program. And so he'd go into interviews, programming interviews, and he would, they, would, they would grill him. I mean, these interviews would be a full day long, and he'd be grilled by three different groups just to make sure that he was good at what he was doing. And they would give him problems, and then they'd ask him to get up to the whiteboard and to go out there and sketch out the algorithms that he'd use to solve that problem. And, and as a result... I mean, he worked his way up in the system. Now, there's there's a, a certain group of programmers that are totally self-taught. It's somewhere uh, seven to nine percent of all programmers are completely self-taught. This this stuff just makes sense to them, and they're the ones that generally work their way up into the top of the system because they are so it's so natural to them that they're the uh, the savants of the the coding world. Um, 
Now, something like 73% of the programmers are self-taught on some level, but uh, it's it's the other 27% that I worry about that have to have a teacher teaching them something, otherwise they can't learn it. Those, those are the ones that aren't going to progress very far in their life. So uh, this the tech world is changing things so quickly uh, that we have to stay ahead of the curve. And that's what's, what's really challenging. So we now have options of going up. If we have a question, we just go onto YouTube and somebody's put a, a YouTube uh, a video up there that we can watch and we can learn how to solve that problem. Right. I don't think I've ever gone onto YouTube, Google, looked for something and couldn't find it. Right. I right. think I, if I would have to think really hard about, I, I really don't think anything comes to mind. Yeah, there might be some really specific niche problems with some uh, really new technology that wouldn't be up there. But I it, wouldn't it's, even it, own that it, piece rare. of technology. <laughs> but, because right now it's 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 a mad dash to see who can get the first videos out there on each of these topics. Um, and if you're if you're first, then you're likely to get much more traffic, and then the traffic turns into ad revenue. And there's a lot of people making a ton of money on YouTube right now. Um, and these are these are not old people either. No, you can make money like eating food on YouTube. Oh, yeah. I, I'm just amazed by all of the opportunities to generate revenue from different channels. Things that I've, again, have not ever thought of. I, why would I ever think someone would want to pay money to watch me eat a sandwich or right. whatever that is? <laughs> But all you need is a camera and a YouTube channel, and you're yeah. good to go. But the product is not eating the sandwich. The product is you. And, and so if people understand that, that it's, it's about them, how they're articulating this experience, what they're going through, their facial expressions, all of this is about them. And, and so they then, it's the business of you. They are learning to leverage that because this is an unique and different opportunity that did not exist 20 years ago. Nobody could do that then. Right. How do you think podcasts, knowing that podcasts are the, we're on a podcast right now, it's the another up and coming medium to be able to share information. How do you think they, they can give you status? They can give you that level of expertise or yeah. how do you think they've changed it? Uh, the number I came across is that there are something like 700,000 podcasts out there right now. And that number continues to climb. Um, I'm guessing in just uh, a few years, we're going to be up over 5 million different podcasts. But podcasts will be used in lots of different ways. It'll be used to, um, there, there's different revenue streams that go along with it, uh, from the advertising to the sponsorship too. But it, it will be used to sell other things as well. Um, and so I think we're going to find a lot of unique and different ways to to leverage podcasts. In fact, if you're a podcast star, that's that's better than a college degree. Yeah, right. You're you're making the sponsorship money. You have the opportunity to likely travel to conferences or go yeah. and meet people. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of great. You know, going back to thinking about why not just find those opportunities that maybe you're naturally good at instead of forcing yourself through the ones that they're not your strengths. Podcasts allow you to pull up anything, whether it's thinking about there's, I mean, there's so many different types of topics, whether it's thinking about a specific dietary lifestyle to 
wanting to talk about like crime stories. I mean, any type of topic that you can find, like our leadership is out there. Yeah. And it's interesting that we are able to give voice to even just those those niche things. And we were talking about this before the podcast, just understanding how, oh, no, we actually were just talking about this with Amazon. But people have the opportunity to explore niches and, and make these niches relevant and mainstream, which right. is very interesting. Right, right. So, and you can associate with other people that have your same quirky niche interest. That's it. That's very important. I mean, if you if you like um, to do artwork on the sides of buildings, only you like to do just really abstract artwork in reds and greens for whatever reason, you can hang out with other people who like reds and greens on large buildings. Um, that's a really quirky niche. Um, and so why you would do that, I, I can't explain, but, uh, but that's your comfort zone. You like being around those people. Right. And you're like, we're going to make more of that in the world. Yeah. What are other ways, like outside of college, you know, podcasting, knowing with our going back and getting certifications. I know I went back to school, you know, I did my undergrad, I did my master's, and then I ultimately went back to school again. But the last time was for a certification. It was for my coaching certification. Yeah. And well, that's, one, one yeah. thing to think about is that right now there's so much original content that's being generated online on original video content um uh netflix is spending like four and a half uh a billion dollars a year apple spending a billion dollars a year um uh youtube is spending a bunch of money uh the hulu is is spending tons of money there's and there's several several other ones um amazon is spending a bunch of money on their amazon prime stuff and there has never been a better opportunity for somebody who is a script writer, somebody who is an actor, actress, people who are lighting guys, camera guys, makeup people, all of this. See, all, all of this is, is freelance stuff. I mean, this is the way Hollywood has worked for years. Whenever a movie project comes into play, it attracts all these people to come together. And then as soon as it's over, they disband and they form around other projects. These projects are happening with greater and greater frequency than ever before. So if you ever had a dream of being a writer for a TV show, now's your chance. I mean, this is there's a better chance now of getting into that field than ever before in all history. Because um, we are generating so much uh, new content all over the place. That's an interesting point. Because I think when you think about the dream of being whether it's an actor, actress, or anything supporting a set, you likely think you have to know someone, that's the only way that you're going to get in, or you think that there are just a fixed amount, like you can't get in there, it's a really tough industry to crack, but that's making decisions off of past data. They're not acknowledging where we are today and where the future is going. People are dropping out of their careers of being insurance salesmen, being accountants. There, there's a lots of boring jobs that they felt they had to do in the past. Now suddenly they have opportunities to 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 be um, a star on whether it's on Facebook or whether it's on Twitter, whatever it is, they can become a star and they can leverage that in unique and different ways. And and suddenly that's their full time job. That becomes their income stream. It becomes their what the world knows them as. 
And they are no longer just this little hidden person in the back of the room. They, they can emerge and uh, come out into the sunshine. That brings me up to someone had sent me a link for a YouTube video on just someone that he just shares his opinion while he's just drinking wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he makes a lot of money for his YouTube channel through that own TV show that he created for himself. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so, um, I was told that, um, it's, it's all about the frequency and having the video show up on a regular frequent basis. And, and, um, and if you do it, uh, consistently for four months, then you'll start noticing this spike in traffic and then it goes up from there. Um, so if you can, Continue to do things like that, uh, you'll get better over time, but, but stick with it. I mean, don't just change your mind every other day and do something different. If you're consistent in how you're doing it, that's how you build audience. That's how you build your fan club. Um, now there's, there's lots of things that schools are not teaching today. Some of the, the big thing that schools are not teaching today is how to, is distraction management. How do you manage yourself in light of all these bright, shiny objects that we have around us? And there are tons of them. Uh, so it's easy to get distracted. So how do we, how do we focus? Nobody's teaching people how to do that. We're, we're not teaching people how to manage their, their, their gigs, how to manage their freelance career. We're not teaching that. We're not teaching people how to manage their relationships. Um, because we can, we can have relationships with people all over the world on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and LinkedIn. And, and so how do, how do we manage that? And then we can have, um, uh, how do we manage our technology? Um, should I buy this new phone? Should I buy this new computer? Um, this gaming console, should I get this over this one? Uh, nobody's teaching us how to make those decisions. Um, and, and so the schools are leaving all of this um, that it's off the table because the teachers don't know how to teach that. We're just teaching all the old stuff that we were taught in the past. But this is the stuff that's most relevant to young people today. As, as a young parent, how do parents manage their kids today? Because they have a whole bunch of extra decision points that their parents never had to deal with. How much screen time should the kid have? At what age do they get a phone? And, uh, and then do we have phone curfews? And, uh, how do we manage the security? Should I be tracking my kid all the time? Should I give them some freedom? There's all these weird things that, um, yeah. Considerations that they never had to yeah, we even. Don't, we don't have the right rule book yet. So. <laughs> well, I mean, and again, go, technology is faster than what I think we recognize. Going back to kids, how they have those apps and then they can bury them in an app that looks like a calculator. Yeah. And we're supposed to, as a parent, I'm not a parent, but parents are supposed to somehow stay current with yeah. everything. Right, right. <laughs> and they're sometimes the most, you know, further back, right? They have technology. They might have a social media account, but they might just have one. They don't have two, three, four, five. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then how to, how to, uh, be self-promoting, how to stick your neck out there, not be afraid the world sees you for who you are because you're, you're not a terrible person after all. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. If we could cure that for people, I would feel like that's the closest way to get world peace ever is just by getting people to really see like, it's okay to be who you are. That's totally fine. Oh, and absolutely. Yeah. In terms of being a futurist, in terms of being able to make an impact on the world, the only way that you could possibly do it is by being yourself. Right. Right. If you replicate someone else's idea. You're not adding more value. Right. Right. But we have so many new channels right now that we just had never had in the past. I mean, if you want to, you want to create a Broadway play, um, if you want to um, create a new board game, if you want to, there's, there's just things that we can do today that we just never could in the past. And, uh, and I, I think everybody should feel empowered by all of this opportunity. And so nobody's teaching us how to manage the opportunities or how to direct our attention, how to manage our time and our focus and our money and all that in the, in that process. All of these things I view uh, on one hand as a problem, but on the other hand as an opportunity, somebody can solve that problem. And in the middle of solving that problem, you're solving millions of people's problems around the world. Hi everyone, it's Jen Dewall and I just wanted to drop in with a quick note. Do your managers know how to build an effective team? Can they create an environment where teamwork is encouraged while setting appropriate benchmarks and delivering projects on time? Are they able to align expectations so their team works effectively toward common goals? You hired the right team, now let us help you develop them. Crestcom offers a robust leadership development program that focuses on results. Each month, participants learn and apply key leadership skills and tools that will unite teams and drive organizational growth. We are serious about accountability. After each class, we help participants apply those leadership skills in group coaching sessions. Are you ready to take your leadership development to the next level? Contact us at crestcom.com so we can help you develop your leaders. And now, back to our podcast. What do you think is the best way to pursue personal growth, given that college may not prepare us for the state of where business is today and where we need to be? We know that we can use and leverage things like social media to become maybe a brand expert or a thought leader. But how do we even how do we how do we start to self-study? Yeah, um, it's it's that's actually a great question, um, because that comes down to us. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a YouTube channel that will answer. That. <laughs> of course, there's probably 500 of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just have to find the right one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question because um, we don't know how to focus our attention very well. And we don't know how to, how, how to take that thing that we're focused on and monetize it and turn it into some sort of a revenue generating uh, income stream and and then something that we can actually rely on uh, because some of these are some of these are such quirky areas you might be the first one in the world to be doing something like this and so um, so it actually makes money yeah well I guess so well, I never tried it before so <laughs> That's And that is interesting because I wonder if because they haven't seen it, especially if it doesn't have an imprint on technology, are you then maybe more reluctant to even pursue it because it's not bad, validated by the technology? Yeah. Um, 
So if you think about all of the, the ways that VR and AR are going to get used in the future, all this virtual reality, augmented reality, and it's it's falling under this big category of mixed reality. So we're simulating things that we can never do in the past. And so we're going to have these um, uh, mixed reality channels we can go to and restore all of the things that we've created on these channels. And so like a YouTube, you can sort through it and you can find whatever thing you're looking for, only it, it will appear three-dimensional. You can be part of that experience, uh, new and different. So we're going to have mixed reality stars out there that have uh, figured out how to monetize that, how to leverage that. And then even the idea of how do you create an ad, uh, a VR ad that's somehow in the space, you know, your product placement or whatever it might be that's three-dimensionalized hanging in space somewhere as you're going through this, this crazy experience. And then, then they're going to have games that move into three-dimensional games and all that. Um, I wrote this column a while back on this idea of uh, how, uh, how much would it be worth uh, to, uh, to sell the, the, the VR rights to NFL football. I mean, it, it had to do with that whole idea that sometime in the future, not too distant future, we're going to be able to put on a VR helmet and watch a football game. And, and we're going to want to immerse ourselves in it so that we can then, I, th I think in the future, all the players will have little cameras around their helmets. And so then you can pick out whatever player you want to be and you can put yourself down on the field and experience what that player is going through. And then with, with haptic feedback, then if they get hit, then, then you can feel it. Um, not as bad as they do, but, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but then you can become the quarterback. You can become a wide receiver or a defensive tackle, whatever you want to be on the field. And you're right down there with the other players. Now, the problem with experience, how much would that be worth? How much extra would you pay to do that? Um, now, if you do that, watching a football game tends to be a social experience. You're with friends, you have pizza and beer and hot dogs, whatever. Suddenly, you've taken yourself out of the room of all your friends because you have this experience going on in your own head suddenly you forget where you put your beer or where your pizza is and, and all the conversations going on in the room don't involve you because you're so wrapped up in being on the field there with the other players uh yeah how does that work i mean that's a problem on one hand but it's also an opportunity for somebody to figure that out on the other hand well, and how does vr impact i know what the with the cell phone, with virtual communities, how that's drastically changed the way that people socialize. And many people would say, or some people say, not in a great way because people are losing that ability to have those direct face-to-face -face conversations or picking up the phone. If you take it to one step further and go to VR and you can't share that experience with them, then how much further away are you or how much more connected are you? I mean, those are... Just different, those are different thoughts that came through Jen's brain while I was thinking about that is how would yeah. VR impact our ability to socialize with people if you well, can't share it with them? Well, we're very social creatures by nature, but I get this question quite a bit. How long will it be before meeting somebody virtually will be as good as meeting somebody in person? See, we're, we're still a long ways from that. I mean, we're still, 
if we're doing a virtual meeting, we still we're going to miss that little bead of sweat falling down their forehead, or or some of the body language that they're using, or just the things, the sidebar conversations happening before or after, um, and and so I kind of come to the conclusion that as soon as we can make a virtual meeting as good as a physical meeting, we're still not going to go there. So somehow the virtual meeting has to be better than meeting somebody physically. So if you can answer that question of what constitutes better, there's a whole world of opportunity out there for you, if yeah. you can answer that. Yeah, what does better <laughs> look like, even from a virtual setting? Because I noticed that there's reluctance to want to have meetings virtually because they think they maybe aren't, they're just not the same. And I would say that some of them actually go the same way, but what would make them better then? Is it a full sensory experience being able to have a closer view where you can see that bead of sweat or you can smell the pizza that they're eating are you monitoring all their vitals right uh, <laughs> their heartbeat go up did their brain waves go off on a different tangent what what happened oh my god could you even picture if you could tell when people's minds started to wander if that was the level where you're like i had this conversation with you and now you're yeah. going a completely different direction he's not paying attention right he's, he's just not paying attention he's dreaming right now i think he fell asleep actually <laughs> yeah if you could start to actually be like i can tell how attentive you are now with technology how would that change the performance review with the boss right you were only attentive 50 percent of the year so we are not going to pay you your annual raise right right um yeah so anyway that becomes this weird scenario that um is that going to happen sometime in the future we don't know um Will we get to that point i think we're, we're social creatures by nature we want to be around other people we have this um kind of this need to be around other human beings uh and but technology is very isolating technology is is very isolating because sometime within the next 10 years i will be able to jump into a car and go to chicago and it will drive non-stop well until it has to charge up or, or something along the way but that's that's just going to be little interludes but go all the way to Chicago and I won't talk to a single person. I'll be watching video games, uh, playing video games, watching movies, and just doing all kinds of things inside of this vehicle, sleeping. And I don't have to socialize at all. So that's, that's very isolating. And I think we might have more and more things like that. Technology tends to pull us away from other humans. Um, lots of gamers spend their entire day in a basement, uh, they're they're having great fun, but uh, yeah, pretty isolated. Yeah, so they're kind of uh, uh, kind of weird individuals. But <laughs> yeah, but, well, they don't socialize. I mean, when we don't socialize, that goes back to a skill. If we don't have that as a developed skill, or it's not there in a place that maybe you even have those shared experiences. Right. Someone that's playing an e game where they are focusing on. Um, capturing, uh, what would it be? What did, what was the example we heard last week? Capturing, they, in this role, the individual was talking about how in the virtual role or world as an e-gamer, one of the roles they like to play on whatever game this was, is they were kind of the, the healer, if you will. And so they would capture all of the supplies or get all of the supplies and health, and then they would bestow these things onto other people. And so there's that gratitude that you get from helping people in this virtual setting, but then trying to apply that same concept, that same 
endorphin rush that's going to come into a, the true space, given the fact that you like to hand out artificial things. I might be going on way too much of a tangent, but it is where like you deal with these situations that are so far from someone's reality and then try to make them somehow work in that reality. Yeah. And then it comes off as awkward, right? Yeah. Like how you would even conversate with the people that are playing a game is going to be different than how you would talk to people. Um, maybe this is too much of a tangent that we can edit this right out of the podcast, but it, it's, it's just it's interesting. But, but it's, you, it's not, it's not because this is, this real world situations. These are happening all the time. And these are people that are um, part of society. We're working with them. We're selling things to them. Now, the reason an economy works is because, um, because we're all deficient individuals. We're all terminally human. And, and we need things. And, we, and because we need things, it gives a, that's, that's the reason why we, we need each other. Um, so if I need something done, I go to somebody who I know can do it and other people ask me to do things for them. So we're providing all these goods and services. So if you have a world that only has two people in it, it's, it's a world that has a very limited economy with those two people trading back and forth. Now, if you have a world with a hundred people in it, is that 50 times greater than two people? It's actually much more than that because of all the lines of trade that are involved in it. Now, that's a real simple example, but theoretically, a world with 9 billion people in it should have a greater economy than a world with 6 billion people in it. So, um, so we, people are what create the economy. It's these human needs that drive, uh, drive the economy. And, and so, uh, we, uh, us isolating ourselves from the rest of the world um, is is not good for the overall general economy. Um, maybe I, I, I'm not an economist, so I'm not sure how. <laughs> you're like I have a future. <laughs> well, then, even while you're talking, maybe you start to think about how technology has impacted our language. Yeah. We don't, you know, to to write in shorthand or to actually write something out. You will be made fun of by Gen Z or millennials if you have a text that is written like a paragraph. Yeah. You know, that's that's a laughable thing because everything is so condensed. It's just so much more vernacular, like shorthand vernacular and acronyms. And yeah. even what how is that going to drive the academic landscape, the business landscape as we start to see evolutions in our communication? Right. Yeah. Um so teaching young kids how to write in cursive, do we need to do that? I mean, is that necessary anymore? They don't know. I can. I volunteered a camp in the summers, and they, many schools don't teach that. So if yeah. their parents wrote a letter in cursive, or actually us as staff will write letters to the students, and there were a few times that this is how we learned it, we wrote them in cursive. Yeah. So that's how you're used to writing a letter, and the students could not read it. Yeah. I, I tried writing in cursive a while ago. Boy, I, I forgot. Why I, did we learn how to do that? Yeah. <laughs> Supposedly it was faster, but right now I can just print things and that's good enough. And I don't have to print a lot, so I don't have to do it. I, I can type things out way faster, uh, although I'm not a great typist either. Uh, I'm just, uh, 
but all of this is changing because suddenly we're going to start talking back and forth to our devices. We're not going to have any written language at all to look at. Uh, so how does that change things? Um, it, it opens up a whole new can of worms, so to speak, because it's uh, going into this uncharted territory. Does that mean all books are then just read to you as if you're a child again? Or do you actually have to read anymore? Or how are you capturing that knowledge? Yeah, it's it's actually a little bit different experience. But, you know, the first time I listened to an audiobook, I thought I was cheating. I thought, wow, this is way too easy. And then, and then I thought about it for a while. And this, the process of, of reading is just this process of looking at the characters on a page and turning them into mental concepts and images. Now, this idea of listening to an audiobook and turning them into mental concepts and images, it's a little different process. But however you get the information in your head really shouldn't matter. Um, and so that's the important part. Um, people get hung up over this particular process. And now the, the ideas that get generated along the way, that'll probably vary and differ by individual. But, um, but I think it's more important that we make it easy to get the information into our head. See, the, the whole trend line is we're taking this vast information world out there with the internet, and we're trying to make the interface with our brain as seamless and as invisible as possible. Um, see, 20 years ago, you'd gone into a big library and you had some tough questions to answer. It could take you 10 hours to answer those questions, going through card catalogs and doing the reference books. The Dewey and all Decimal that. System. Yeah, all of that. And now today with a search engine and a keyboard and a screen, you can get those same answers in 10 minutes. So going from 10 hours to 10 minutes, the next interface is the 10 second interface. This idea that somebody could ask you a question and in 10 seconds, your mind could think your way to an answer. Now that's that's this neural link thing that Elon Musk is working on. Uh, that might even be faster than 10 seconds, but that's that's the type of thing, that's the type of direction that we're going. That's the trend line. What do we lose? You know, if thinking- Yeah, what we do we lose access, in the process? That's yeah, what you're gonna ask. And yeah, I, if we have access to this information, it can be put into our brains in such a fast amount of time. Are we losing strategic thinking skills? Are we losing problem solving skills? What are we losing? Um, that's yeah. I guess we'll have to figure that out. I th there are there are things that we lose, um, but it's it's. Uh, there, I mean, we we lost a lot of things when we went from the stagecoach to the car. Um, uh, is it something we should have hung on to? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Just because you lose it. It just makes me, you know, because I wonder, does it create more excitement than that's built as you continue to learn more? Or does it create people that become lazier and maybe aren't as because they know that they don't have to try to work for that in the same way that was once done? Or do they love this access that they have and they go further? You know what? I think you could probably argue it both ways just based on. Yeah, well. Our old way of thinking is we had to commit so much to memory. Um, if you're going to be a doctor, you have to learn all the body parts. You have to learn all of the the nerve endings. You need to learn every chemical that's out there and how it affects the body. And you have to have that all stored in your brain somehow. But 
if you can just think your way to those answers, do we need to have all of that committed to memory? Um, because that, that was hard. I mean, that took a lot to get all of that stored in your brain. So many note cards. Yeah. So many note cards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so that, that was, that was thousands of cans of Red Bull to get that in that brain. Right. Right. <laughs> Definitely. So I guess one of the positive things is, no more Red Bull, Red Bull, maybe saving money there. And then you're probably getting better sleep <laughs> like, yeah. by not having that. It's yeah. so interesting. to But, think but uh, will you be as effective as somebody that's committed it to memory? Um, yeah. The, and the people that have had to go through all those rigors in the past to becoming a lawyer, a doctor, a teacher, whatever. Um, if, if the path is easier for somebody in the future, is it the same? And uh, if, if you, being the old school person, feel shortchanged because you had to go through so much, you had to endure so many hardships to get there. Um, right. Like maybe it's not three years to get a law degree. It can be something that you do in six months and yeah, you're actually, ready to actually, go. Actually, I think it might be something you can do in a month. I, I think an entire college degree could be sped up to a point where you could finish a college degree in a month. I think a lot of people, a lot of young people, just for the hell of it, are going to learn um, uh, a language, some foreign language, one of these disappearing languages. They'll learn one of these disappearing languages just over a weekend just because they can. Right. I think that'll be fascinating. It's really, I think we've not, we've not figured out really good ways of learning foreign languages, but I think we can do that. Uh, with uh, with AI, I think we can do that in a faster way ever than in the past. We need to learn roughly 2,500 words to communicate in a new language and just learning them and then we can expand from there. But, um, but yeah, one, one, thing, one thing that's real interesting is that New York City is actually home to lots of, uh, of these disappearing languages. Uh, there, there's over 800 languages spoken in the New York City area. Uh, and a lot of times the people just speak them in their, in their house, husband and wife speak to each other in that language. That, That's so interesting that to think dying about. dying language that only they know how to speak. <laughs> That's still alive That's in the Big bar Apple. Barely alive. There's over 500 languages that, that don't have fewer than 10 people still speaking the language. I mean, it'd be interesting to think about how AI could then take that, listen to a conversation, translate what it is, and then actually create a backup library of language mm -hmm. to yeah. keep it alive. Can AI can probably do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something I've, I've actually written about that whole topic that I think we can, we can actually preserve a lot of these dying languages. Because there, there's a lot more of our culture and history in a language than just speaking. Um, there's there's different ways of expressing things. There's different ways of thinking about challenges and hardships and all that that we lose with that. So uh, how will this evolve in the future? Uh, we're still waiting to see. Jeez. Thomas, I've loved our conversation today. It has been just an awesome conversation. I know we went a lot of different directions with this, but all I, I never go off on a tangent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that absolutely didn't happen. Christian's just staring at us like you guys were totally on topic that whole time. <laughs> no, but I think 
we we all have to do that. We have to be a little bit more curious about what's coming down the horizon, how we can better position ourselves by being more aware and alert to what we need to do to adapt. Yeah, I I, I like to say that we um, every every entrepreneur needs to keep their peripheral vision intact as they as they look over the opportunity landscape because there's so many things happening off on one side or the other side that we should pay attention to those because there's things happening there that we can take advantage of that we never imagined in the past. Thomas, we like to wrap up every episode with a final question. And our final question is always, what is your leadership habit for success? Yeah, that's, you, t- you told me that before we started. And that one's going to stump me. I, I don't have any formula. Uh, <laughs> I think we talked about conceptual thinking. That is absolutely because that is one of the ways. That how do you, you know, how do you become I, a great I'm, futurist? I'm, I'm just kidding here. We're uh, um, we have we have a few different ways of doing things. That um, so as an example, um, one of the things we did at the Da Vinci Institute that I run. We started the Da Vinci Institute back in 1997, and we wanted to start it as a futurist think tank. And the the idea of what a futurist think tank is and uh, how it's evolved over time um, that's that's still an unusual ongoing experiment. But I, I like to think of this um, it, it, as the this process of trying to understand. Um, it's a laboratory for the future human condition. So how, how people are going to change and how our lifestyles evolve into the future. And, and so I kind of look at that as kind of our, our mission statement, if you will, and, um, and, and try to understand it from that perspective. So we have, uh, we have a series of mastermind groups that we, we pull together these intensely bright people and we, we, we dive into these topics, real timely topics. And that's, that's what, I find that to be, well, the best entertainment in town, but it's also a, just a fascinating way of unlocking a lot of, uh, a lot of brain power on this one particular topic. The last one we did was on quantum computing and this idea of whether, whether or not, um, Google actually achieved quantum supremacy or not. But it's, it brings, brings up this question of how will, how will our problems get solved once we can apply a million times more computer power to any given problem that we have? And I find that to be such a fascinating question. Uh, what would, I mean, what diseases would be cured? What would be, yes, if you have yeah. that much more additional capacity, brain power, data, yeah. obscure data. Right. That's yeah. incredible to think about how that could be leveraged. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Volkswagen just used quantum computers to solve one big issue, and that's in the driverless world of how to uh, how to create an operating system that gets the the right number of cars in the right place in the city at the right time. Um, that yeah. would be would that mean that I would not necessarily have to stay in traffic then? <laughs> if they could figure that out and be like, this person needs to get to work by 8 a.m., we will start her driver's l- driverless car going this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, they'll give you the right time and everything. But for the most part, you won't care because you can be productive doing other things. and You won't care how long it takes for the car to get there. 
that that changes lots of things. Do I mean, you even I, need cars? Well, I think, yeah, I think cars are, are going to evolve into lots of different things. I think we have driverless mobile businesses. I think we have driverless mobile offices. I mean, rather than being in this room here, we could be in a mobile unit traveling around town here, seeing all the sights, seeing everything going past us as we're driving along. And we don't worry about, because that's a, a totally safe environment, this thing is just driving. Um, is that the type of office you would like to work in in the future? I would love to work in an office like that. I would love to be doubly as productive on a commute. I mean, I, I would say I'm productive on a commute with podcasting, but knowing that you could actually do something with your hands and eyes yeah. or being in a mobile place, just the stimulus that comes from changing in sceneries would be amazing for your own brain power. Yeah. So the businesses today spend a tremendous amount of money getting customers to come to them. In the future, a driverless mobile business can go to where the customers are. So anytime there's a softball tournament, there's a parade on Main Street, any gathering of people, driverless mobile businesses will be there and set up, be ready to do business. The, the mall of the future might very likely be just this giant warehouse that every morning they open the doors and a whole stream of driverless mobile businesses come in and set up shop. And it's a different configuration, different grouping of businesses every day. So it's a totally different experience every time you go there. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes. I mean, it'd be even more fun to think about how they could do, you know, explore more with virtual trying on <laughs> all the ways that I could save time that way. Or just, you know, somehow finding that perfect thing based on understanding your saved preferences that you go into said virtual mall and they say, by the way, there are 10 things and go to each of these stores and you will find them waiting for you. Yeah. That would be insane. Yeah. But you know, it's, you think about, I think for people that aren't really familiar with futurists, maybe you think about the Jetsons, you're like, well, none of that can happen. We don't have, you know, a flying spaceship that's taking us around, but so many more things have come to fruition than what I think anyone ever thought that who can put a finite, absolute judgment on what the future holds for us. Yeah. A great question to ask is what a thousand years from now, what things will be possible and what things will not. Will now, life be possible? Will you be able to use technology to extend the way that you live? Like is immortal life then an option? That's probably too well, much of a question. <laughs> No, we, we've actually delved, delved into that whole project, uh, that whole uh, discussion area, because um, it, it, we start off with this premise, no person should ever die ever. Um, and then you start going down the list. Well, we in the future, we could probably cure, cure all the diseases. In the future, we can probably cure deviant behavior. Um, in the future, we, if somebody has an accident, we can probably put them back together again and um and keep them alive and and then as we, we can probably cure aging uh as part of this and so then you, you get to the bottom and say well then no person should ever die ever is that our goal and if not why not is that our goal um and so we have the hippocratic oath that doctors are taking Shouldn't that be our goal, though, that no person should ever die ever? And, um, and, and so it brings up this, this great discussion. And, and is that, is, is that going to be possible? 
Um, and so I, I find that to be just as fascinating discussion because I, I talk to a lot of people and I say, well, I don't want to live forever. Why would I want to live forever? Uh, <laughs> it's because you're basing your forever on what the past is like when you have no idea how amazing the future could be. <laughs> I, I had a I had a friend of mine ask me the question. He says, well, isn't it true that somebody alive today is actually going to be the first person that's going to live forever? And I said, well, that's really a crazy question because in order to prove that somebody can live forever, somebody would have to live longer than the person that lives forever. So we will never know. <laughs> Best of luck trying to figure that out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Thomas, thank you so much for sharing your insight, your expertise. And as listeners, stay tuned. I'm going to give you some directions on how you can connect with Thomas. You can stay current with his work. You can find out more about the Da Vinci Institute and just explore all of the topics that we've talked about today and many more that Thomas writes about. Thomas, again, thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. To find out more about Thomas or book him for an event, head over to futuristspeaker.com or find the website in our show notes. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcast streaming service and also share it with your friends.